Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Some Assembly Required, Chapters 1 and 2. On April 1st, 1994, I put the finishing touches on a novella, a novella that was created intentionally in and around the season of Lent in that particular year. In fact, its nonfiction title is Temptations from the Wilderness 2, Lenten Writing, Writing Experiment 1994. But I actually call it, some assembly required, a neo-surrealist forsaking a habit for Lent. And despite the length of the work with eight chapters, something like a hundred pages, give or take. I'm intending to release it in serialized form this year on Inappropriate Conversations. So, a short intro, and then I intend to dive right in. Explanations about the nature of the work will be covered more fully at the very end of this episode. The idea is to do the first chapter, uh, play a quick promo, hit the second chapter, then after that the different drummer, and then this is an this is a work, despite being arguably fiction, that has an end notes page with an afterword. I'll read the afterword first as a way of introducing the notion of having footnotes in a presumably fictional work, and at the end of each episode, I'll deal with the footnotes. One other quick note before I get started. At the uh, website at inappropriateconversations.org, I will use each one of these episodes to share parts of the table of contents. So rather than reading or including anything from the table of contents themselves, what each one of these chapters looks like from a table of contents perspective will be included as sort of the show notes. That's important because the idea behind this particular Linton writing experiment was to write in 40, hopefully 40 unique and different writing styles. Now, it isn't necessarily true that from the perspective of the Christian observation of Lent, that it was one complete writing style per day. The first time I did a Temptations from the Wilderness writing exercise was writing 40 editorials, and that really was a one-per-day situation because those were the short newspaper-style blurbs, not a full-length commentary or column from a bylined columnist, but more what the editors thought, usually a two, three paragraph format. And with the consistent length of the format and it also being relatively brief, it was at least possible to commit to doing one entire editorial end to end in the course of a single day over 40 consecutive days. I'll explain more about that concept of 40 consecutive days in the afterward. For this one though, some of these works, some of these styles vary in length. So it was essentially for the entire Linton season that year in 1994, works were going to be constructed together and then pieced together at the end. I call it a novella, but in the traditional sense of a novel, it doesn't have fictional characters, it might have some recurring themes, but there certainly isn't a clear linear plot or any notion of character development along the way. That's not the approach. One other quick introductory note. Some of this might sound a little bit familiar, because over the last almost 10 years of Inappropriate Conversations, there have been moments where I've shared part of this on previous Inappropriate conversation shows, or even in blog posts at the website at inappropriateconversations.org. The articles category is where the written blog entries can be found. So that's just kind of worth noting. One other thing before I begin with the first chapter and that's that these episodes will not necessarily come out back-to-back. -back. If I live into my plan, the first one will be coming out very close to, if not on, Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, as most well, Christians, both Protestant and Catholic, observe Lent as a season. It won't end during that period. Rather than compressing all of these some assembly required episodes together, seven in all, again, if I execute according to plan, eight chapters, with two being covered here in the intro. 
uh, I will mix in talkbacks as we go, and the next talkbacks should be talkbacks to the beginning of Walk the Earth. Having said that, the focus I wanted to do, and the way I want to spend most of the time today, is some assembly required, a neo-surrealist forsaking a habit for Lent. Chapter 1 As I've told you before, I like what I read, the editor said. Then what? Trey asked. It's not the ideas. I like the ideas. Many of them are quite good. Some are even compelling. The problem is with the form. How do you mean? What is wrong with the form? Well, simply put, you have one. It would be better if you didn't. Trey pondered his suggestion. He rose from across the desk, tapped the corner of an adjacent filing cabinet, and glanced through the vertical Venetian blinds. Benny clutched his briefcase tightly as he checked his wristwatch and calculated the inevitability that he would be late. To evade the crowd, he navigated a path by jaywalking across two boulevards, giving him a shortcut through an alley. The back entrance of his office building was was finally in view. Beyond the range of his view, by precisely 180 degrees, was a knife pointed to the small of his back. No problems, asshole, the assailant muttered. Just the wallet. Benny froze in his tracks. He was shaking, but the assailant didn't notice. What's your problem? The assailant barked through gritted teeth. If I slice and dice you, man, I still get the wallet. Okay, I keep it in my coat pocket, Benny said. He reached inside his suit coat, turned, and fired three bullets into the heart of his attacker. The alleged mugger, a black teenager with a juvenile record of criminal activity, was dead before paramedics arrived on the scene. Jordan Andrews, age 17, was found in an alley off 12th Avenue. Adjacent to his body was a knife which police have matched for his fingerprints. His killer remains in custody, but Dorman's lawyer insists that the accountant's release is merely a formality. Benny has cooperated fully with the police investigation, the lawyer said. In fact, Benny's account has been totally corroborated by the physical evidence at the crime scene. Of course, the public protestations of a lawyer could not possibly answer the critical questions evolving from Benny's blasts. Was Benny A. The victim of a crime B. Acting in self-defense C. Terrified and frightened by his circumstances D. Having an unusual but lucky day E. Relieved at finally living out his fantasy. F. The next tabloid media multi-thousandaire. G. A racist who personifies a backward society. H. A compelling argument for gun control. I. A compelling argument against gun control. J. Not particularly compelling in any regard. K. Incapable of being convicted by any jury. L. Another trend-setting victim-killer avatar. M. Himself a victim of temporary insanity. N. Completely controlled by media violence. O. A fool who should have parted with his wallet. P. Partially A, B, and L, but not C. Q. Solely D, E, and K, but calling himself M. R. Undeniably not H, I, or J, but possibly N. S. Ironically, A, D, F, K, L, and O. T. Only A and O, O, and did I mention O? U, both G and K, leaving society with answer C. V, a familiar combination of Q, R, and F. W, just Benny to those who know him. X, all of the above. Y, None of the above. And Z. Both X and Y? If you selected Z, then you have answered correctly. 
If you selected anything other than Z, then you know more about this case than empirical observation indicates you should. Come on, come on, tell us what you know, and more importantly, how you know it, the detective queried. She burst into tears. Mrs. Anderson, the detective said with a deliberate pace, no one, particularly not the media, was aware of the assassin's one-way plane ticket home. No one. He waited for her to blow her nose and dry her eyes. And yet you, you come in here with seemingly innocent questions about how she planned to dispose of the murder weapon because inexplicably you knew she was planning to fly off to Freeport. I, n I never said anything about his, her, her destination, Mrs. Anderson said. I just assume, let me assume a few things for you, ma'am, he interrupted. I assume you didn't come here because of your indefatigable nose for the gossip. I assume you aren't some psychic who heard about her plane ticket from the whispering of the wind. She sat motionless, her face contorted in confusion and disbelief. I'll draw some conclusions of my own, the detective continued. I'm guessing that you used more than common sense to decipher the fact that she didn't take the assault rifle with her from New Mexico. I'm guessing that you could tell why our efforts to trace this weapon to a dealer here won't be fruitful. I'm guessing you know all about the plastic explosives and tear gas. Explosives? she asked, snapping back to attention. Go ahead and call your lawyer, Fruitcake, he said. You're going to need his advice. First, first, gather all the spices together particularly whole cloves, cinnamon, and ginger, while none, except nutmeg, which is optional, should be pre-ground. It will be necessary to crush the pieces into smaller and softer bits. A pestle would be ideal for this task. Second, mix the ground spices with any others in a shallow metal cup. If you intend to add garlic, do so sparingly and only after the other ingredients have been independently combined. Third, Saturate the resonant contents of the cup with one of the solvents. Wine, preferably a white grape or port, brandy, or grain alcohol. Completely saturate the spice mix, but stop after a thin layer of liquid rises above the saturated solids. Fourth, stir as needed. It should not be necessary to stir in the liquid prior to this point, since the spices would readily absorb any solvent. However, Stirring before the steam bath will help ensure that all elements are exposed equally to the heat. Fifth, steam bath. Suspend the shallow metal cup on a strainer at the top of a large pot of boiling water. Make sure the cup remains in contact with the water surface, but not submerged. The goal is to retain a soft, damp texture to the contents without direct water dilution. The steam bath will dry off the alcohol without drying up the spices. Note that the process may take several minutes. If it is necessary to add water to the pot, boil the water first in a separate container so the temperature of the boiling water does not drop significantly during the duration of the steam bath. Although not harmful, swallowing this product is not necessary to enjoy the benefits of flavor, scent, and caffeine-based energy boost. Another helpful hint. Although this product is totally unrelated to chewing tobacco, dip, or snuff, it can be used in a similar manner. As a consequence, the consumer should be aware of society's often negative reaction to the accompanying spitting and dip removal. Both of these activities are obviously aesthetically displeasing. Tell me about it, Claire said, dropping her fork into her salad. It gets worse, Nicole continued. Then he actually spilled the cup on my parents' carpet, Claire gasped. I don't think the tobacco smell is coming out. More than just tobacco, Claire said, it's spit, too. For me, she replied, the smell matters more than anything else. Since I quit smoking a couple years ago, I guess uh, two and a half, I just can't take the smell. Did you take one of those hardcore aversion courses or something? Nope, cold turkey. Still, I guess aversion was part of the trade-off from turning things around. I'm glad we had reservations then, and we didn't have to take first available seating, Claire said. Well, it's not like I wretch at the sight of smoke. No, but... But I'd, I'd rather avoid disgusting things, Claire nodded. Plus, and this is just between you and me, chum, I, I feel strongly about these 
Nicole looked to the ceiling to locate her words. Olfactory aesthetics, that it might be enough to transform boyfriend into has-been. No, Claire said, nearly choking. I don't want to worry about nauseating habits for the rest of my life. Nikkei, tisk tisk, you were never that serious, and you don't seem so now. No, Nicole said, but maybe Carl's rough edges explain why I haven't been more serious. Claire motioned a passing waiter. How may I help you? he asked. I'm going to need a cup of coffee, she said. Make it black, but I'll need a small cup of milk with it. Should I refill your cup, ma'am? he asked of Nicole. Yes. Decaffeinated? Thanks. So which one bothers you more? Claire asked. Chewing tobacco or cigarette smoke? Well, with Carl, the answer is obvious because he doesn't smoke. I guess I'm glad he doesn't smoke. The smoke is worse? By a mile. Unless, in my case, you're kissing the Big Dipper, it's easier to avoid. I feel like smoke seeks me out, follows me around, sets up a condo in my clothes. No doubt about it, Claire said. I have to dry clean the weekend wardrobe whenever we go clubbing. Nicole lowered her voice, as if she was worried about offending an eavesdropper. It's worse at restaurants. You think? Oh, there's not as much smoke in the air, Nicole whispered. Let's face it, though. You don't go to a bar to eat. People here are eating. Like it or not, a lot of people see a cigarette as one of the courses served with dinner. Maybe I enjoy food too much. Look at me and cancel that, maybe. Even when I smoked, I didn't like how it altered the tasting process. You felt that way while you were, so to speak, a smoker? Claire asked. In many ways, that paradox led me to quit, Nicole answered. One day, sitting at a restaurant in the waiting room, a really crude thought occurred to me. Can you handle it? How crude? Nicole hushed her voice again. Just tell me if I should stop. Like that ever works, Claire said, revealing a victim's grin. I began to think about examples of odors that are, one, repellent to many people, two, potentially dangerous if inhaled too directly, and three, a mixture of involuntary and voluntary, Nicole said. You know, someone addicted to tobacco has to smoke, but most have significant control over where and when. The press has just gone wild lately with secondhand smoke studies. And let's face it, other people's exhaled smoke is not an ideal breathing environment, even for another smoker. And the crude part? Nicole silently looked at nearby tables while she paused for the waiter to leave. I don't know how to put this. I was just struck by the comparison between secondhand smoke and... and... again... Nicole gazed to the restaurant's light fixtures. Flatulence. Are you saying what I think you're saying? Claire asked, embarrassed more by her hazy comprehension of Nicole's terms than of the concept. Think about it. You have a smell that is created by a person and it bothers everyone else more than him. No matter what a doctor might say, neither odor could be considered healthy by any means. And even though we all do it, and we do, girlfriend, I must be embarrassing you because you are definitely blushing... Some people have the ability to... Her voice dropped so low that Claire had to read her lips. Fart. Claire gasped and looked around the restaurant. It's true, Nicole replied. I dated a guy in high school who, briefly mind you, who could do it on purpose. He occasionally did it just to, I don't know, to prove a point. You always do this to me, Claire said. First you bring up something offensive, then you tell me to stop you before you go too far, but how can I? I'd love to stop and tell you that you're way off in the stratosphere on this one if only I knew what you were talking about. Look, it's just hypothetical. Say, for example, that a large group of people were unified behind their right to openly, you know, I know, in public, whenever they felt like it, and especially on airplanes and in restaurants, they would just share their stink with the world. Furthermore, they use legal arguments to block criticism of them. Much like an addict, they argue, they cannot help the natural course of digestion, etc., etc. It's not dangerous like secondhand smoke is, though, Claire said, shaking her head. I can't believe I'm making such an observation. Decadent, isn't it? Claire laughed. 
I don't know whether flatulence is dangerous or not, Nicole replied. In large quantities, I bet it is. Either way, do you think a restaurant like this would give those people a special section? Or tell them to get out and never come back? Well, guess the second one? I'm not even factoring in the health department into this. Medical proof or not, a restaurant with a gas-passing guest list isn't likely to breeze through any inspections. You just thought of this while you were waiting first available one night? Yes, I think I peer-pressured myself out of smoking for fear of offending people. You're one incredible woman, Nikkei. Carl's gonna be crushed to lose you. Don't laugh, Nicole said, and and hush-hush about Carl. My mind's not made up about the Big Dipper just yet. Why don't you just whip him into shape by telling him this story of yours, only add to it that you associate his chewing tobacco with, Claire whispered, fart breath. You're awful. I know, I know. You can't tell me you haven't been offended in a you-smelt-it-you-dealt-it way, Nicole said. Well, there was this one time. Oh, do tell. I'm not uppity, really, granted. I was at work. And there were three or four of us in this elevator going up to the 30s. I was working on 34 then, and the others were going up even higher. Same job, right? Nicole asked. Yes. One of the guys in the elevator was a suit. I thought he might be one of our department heads or even a VP from another company. Well, he leans over and lots lights one up right in the elevator. I gather he offended you. It was, it was as much the principle of the thing as anything else. He ticked me off as if, like a bigwig or something, he decided his shit didn't stink. You know what I mean? Been there, done that. Yeah, so I told him off between 24 and 34. He couldn't get a word in edgewise before I got off. My God, Claire, what did you say? I don't remember really. I said something about him being rude and inconsiderate, and then I told him that he should have, he should have held back till he could get to the bathroom. Or at least his office, Nicole interrupted. Right. Instead, he stunk the rest of us right out of that tiny elevator. What did he say? What could he say? Claire queried. Did you tell him it was breaking the law? I didn't have to. I just embarrassed him. What are you doing Friday night? Nicole asked. I don't know. Why? I got to talk to Carl about this weekend. The job's all yours, Nicole said. Oh, no. I'm not cleaning up your messes. Be a chum, please. Welcome to This Week in Gay. What is This Week in Gay, you say? Well, This Week in Gay was a podcast hosted by Anthony Anselmo that featured a cast of rotating participants. Each week, the participants would discuss major news items impacting the LGBT community. But after a few years, Anthony was ready to move on to some other priorities in his life. Since then, many of the participants and listeners have longed for the show's return. So we're happy to bring you This Week in Gay 2.0. like when reading a story like this aloud, it puts the reader in a little bit of a disadvantage. The multiple choice test in the section I call Benny's Got It, for example, works a lot better. It's a little bit more easy to decipher that if you can see all of the words on the page in front of you. To me, this is a bit of an homage to the science classes that I took in high school. Probably my sophomore or junior year at some point, I think beginning with biology, the teachers began making what we would traditionally call the easier form of test taking, the multiple choice test, and turning it into something that was actually a bit of a nightmare. This is pretty much an example of the way those tests work, only slightly exaggerated, with more than just like five choices, A, B, C, D, E, but actually going all the way into like LMNOP and Q&R, with worse, some choices that were combinations of previous choices. So the question, the answer that you were reviewing, considering forced you to look back at the other possible multiple choice answers to piece them together. At a certain point, somewhere around the letter P in this, I began referring to previous options in the multiple choice series. So before I get into chapter two, I think I'll take a little bit of time and walk through that again. This was the story about the accountant who was held up and shot and killed his mugger 
And it turned into sort of a classroom example with a multiple choice test. And of course, it couldn't possibly be any classroom because there's not enough information to factually answer these questions, which then spins out again into a you know, police interrogation scene. Again, the whole point of some assembly required is different, unique, and in this case, obviously, clashing writing styles that seem to fit together, but maybe actually don't. Multiple choice option P was partially A, B, and L, but not C, meaning that it was partially that Benny was the victim of a crime, acting in self-defense, and another trend-setting victim-killer avatar, but was not terrified and frightened by his circumstances. Q was solely D, E, and K, but calling himself M. That would mean that he was solely having an unusual but lucky day, relieved at finally living out his fantasy, incapable of being convicted by any jury, but calling himself a victim of temporary insanity. For R, it was undeniably not H, I, or J, but possibly N. H, this was the series of H was a compelling argument for gun control, and I was a compelling argument against gun control, and J was not particularly compelling in any regard. So you got those canceling each other out, but he was possibly in, completely controlled by media violence. So there's that one. S was, ironically, A, D, F, K, L, and O. So that would be the victim of a crime, having an unusual but lucky day, the next tabloid media multi-thousandaire, incapable of being convicted by any jury, another trend-setting victim-killer avatar, and a fool who should have parted with his wallet. My favorite of these, personally, is T, that he was the victim of a crime and a fool who should have parted with his wallet, a fool who should have parted with his wallet, and oh, did I mention a fool who should have parted with his wallet? For more information on that, there's a past inappropriate conversation, I believe number 113, called Raised on Robbery. That's my story of a fool who should have parted with his wallet. In fact, I intend to have Raised on Robbery as a relatively soon... It's going to be one of the next inappropriate conversations talkback episodes, as I don't want to let the year get too close to Election Day without talking about issues related to gun violence, gun usage, and who knows, maybe even gun control. These are old episodes. I'd have to revisit them. So you was... Both G and K, leaving society with the answer C. Well, G was a racist who personifies a backward society. K, incapable of being convicted by any jury, leaving society terrified and frightened by these circumstances. So there's that. V, a familiar combination of Q, R, and F. So for V, the answer would be a combination of having an unusual but lucky day, relieved at finally living out his fantasy, incapable of being convicted by any jury, but calling himself a victim of uh, temporary insanity. That was Q. R would be the combination of uh, a compelling argument for gun control, a compelling argument against gun control, not particularly compelling in any regard, um, sort, of, sort of undeniably not those things, but possibly completely controlled by media violence. So that gets you to the Q and R. F was um, the next tabloid media multi-thousandaire. So Q, R, and F. And then from there, the list gets a little bit easier. I wanted to make sure I had one where the multiple choice options took you to a multiple choice option that forced you to go into other multiple choice options. I suppose I should apologize for that. But then again, my sophomore biology teacher and my senior year chemistry teacher never apologized to me. The Last Ovation Podcast presents short stories on various celebrities where I tell you about their lives, careers, and tragic deaths. Past episodes have featured stars like Sal Mineo, Dorothy Dandridge, and Brad Renfro. Those and more can be found by visiting my website at thelastovation.com. You can find The Last Ovation at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and any other major podcast directory. Thank you for listening. Let's move on then from here to Chapter 2, Some Assembly Required, a Neo-Surrealist Forsaking a Habit for Lent. 
While you were out, Teresa M. called. Just kidding. Sorry, Dan T. Trixie froze in her tracks as Joe rolled over toward her in bed. Although she couldn't be sure the noise from the kitchen wasn't a sign of danger, Trixie's desire to sneak out of the bedroom was more powerful than any fear of such danger. Unwilling, or perhaps unable to pretend she was asleep, Trixie just sat motionless by the pillow and waited a few seconds. Once Joe resumed steady breathing pattern, she walked to the far corner and slid to the floor. Her list of priorities this morning was short and flexible. One, get a drink of water. Two, urinate. Three, locate Hester. Four, investigate the strange noises coming from the kitchen. She decided to pursue options three and four first. The order would all depend upon Hester. How easily she could locate him would depend on whether he wanted to be found. Hester, the source of the noises that awoke her, was crouched below the kitchen table. His first attempt to pilfer the pantry was botched. He was wise to believe that his greatest chance for success would come from working alone and undiscovered. From the shadow of the table legs, Hester squintered at Trixie as she bumbled into the kitchen. Incapable of being totally discreet, Trixie bounced to every corner of the room. In an act of desperation as much as aggravation, Hester poised and pounced her on her final pass. He grabbed her by the waist and pulled her down. Without even a yelp, Trixie turned on Hester, bit his ear, and threw him to the tile. They were at each other's throats before they remembered the consequences of waking up Joe. Trixie stood up and straightened herself. Heather, motioning for her to sit still, tiptoed down the hall and peered into the bedroom. Joe was snoring. Hester's plan was simple. Trixie would watch the hallway and alert him, quietly alert him, of any movement from Joe. Hester would climb onto the counter and resume the break-in he had started nearly an hour earlier. Mindful of how well his plan had been executed thus far, Trixie agreed without comment. After all, she hadn't even detected his activities until he pulled the box out of the cabinet and clumsily dropped it onto the counter. Connie would be back from church any minute. The sun was now high enough to shine through the bedroom curtains. Anyway, Joe couldn't afford to sleep through his wife's return without getting Trixie up and outside. Her absence from the bed would be noticeable soon enough. September 3rd. On evening walks when I was in college, the sense that I was at home remained much stronger. Even traveling through the heart of an empty campus after midnight, protected only by the occasional blue emergency telephone, I never felt threatened. I now live in a city with less than 50,000 people residing in it. It's a small number. Statistics show that the average neighborhood here should be a far less violent place than a college campus. Nevertheless, I felt part of something, something with roots while in school, and I don't feel that connection here. For the first time in my life, I feel constantly on guard. I feel a need to be alert. Feverishly, Hester pried at the corner of the box. Gritting his teeth to put pressure on the handle, he finally forced a fingernail into a narrow opening and used the leverage to pull the package apart. Finally! The hair on the back of his neck stood up with excitement. Trixie started to dance. Shut up! Heather hissed. His imperious attitude was more than she could take. The barking woke Joe immediately. Here's what you do, the mechanic said, shifting a toothpick to the other side of his mouth. You want to get on 155. It's not the quickest way in terms of miles, but taking the turnpike will get you there the easiest. That'll probably make it the fastest route. North from there? Yes, but not far long. If you hit Pritchett, buddy, you've gone too far. Another thing, there won't be any roadside markers, so it would help if the little lady there kept a lookout for you on the right. Your turn will be to the right. Thank you, sir. Don't mention it. Joe sprang from the bed. A quick glance at the clock confirmed his fear that Trixie was in some kind of trouble. The noise had frozen both Trixie and Hester in their tracks. Joe intended to call out to her. He didn't, though, because he couldn't be sure the barking wasn't directed toward Connie. She would be home from church any moment. His first glance into the kitchen confirmed his fear that Hester was causing trouble. Perched on the countertop with a Girl Scout sugar cookie in his mouth was Hester, purring. 
He dropped the cookie down to Trixie and continued scratching at the packaging. Trixie, silenced by the bribe, took the cookie in her mouth and ran into the bathroom. A stunned Joe wouldn't have time to take the cookie away from her. In fact, she even stopped at her bowl for a drink of water. September 4th. I've decided that my uneasiness on walks in this town doesn't have as much to do with the college nostalgia as I may have implied. The bottom line, I feel threatened. In school, how was I to be threatened? I carried little, if any, money. You don't fear being killed by pondering the overriding questions of existence. Life and death seem trivial issues by comparison. Admittedly, I had a few concerns. There was a small number of situations I carefully avoided. Steering clear of groups of uh, fraternity members pretty much eliminated the prospect of homosexual gang rape, though. You, you crossed that one menace out, and my mind was free to roam. Hello, Tom said, answering the telephone. Hello? Hello. Who am I talking to? The caller asked. You tell me, Tom answered, showing his characteristic impatience with intrusive phone calls. What do you mean? Is this AJ? Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Who are you? Oh, um, I'm Frank Forsha. Who are you calling, Frank? Frank Forsha, the caller answered. You are calling yourself on the telephone? No answer. Am I to understand that you, Frank Forsha, are calling to speak with a Frank Forsha? Tom asked. Maybe I should just hang up and let you two chat in private. No, I'm Frank Forsha. So I'm told. Who are you? Frank asked. Let's try this over again, Tom said. Who are you trying to call? Are you jerking me around? The caller asked, revealing a temper. Who called who here, Tom? Reply jerking you around. What kind of stupid son of a bitch are you? I'm the one being harassed in my home by a moron who says he wants to talk to himself on the phone in my home. Tom had touched a nerve. What the fuck is your problem? Don't you know it's against the law to verbally attack somebody over the phone? Well, I know it's illegal to make a harassing phone call, but as the receiver of your nuisance call, I've got every legal right to speak my mind freely, you cocksucking bastard. If you don't want to hear what I think of you, then don't annoy me with shit calls like this. Who is this? That's my point, you stupid bastard. You made the call and you don't even know who you called. What's wrong with this picture? Frank was silent. I'll tell you who I am, Tom said. I'm Frank Forsha, an unbelievably, incredibly, aggravatingly maladjusted moron. All right, asshole. You tell me who you are now, because if you don't, I'll... You'll what? Are you going to harass me with a prank phone call? Tell you what, dipshit. Why don't you give me your address? What? Give me your address, Frank. Or maybe I'll just look it up. Hey, hang on the line for a second. I'm going to look up your address so I can go over to your house with an ice pick and carve my goddamn name in your fucking forehead. A little cranial bleeding might relieve the pressure on your obviously overworked brain. Frank hung up. September 5th. Rereading from yesterday explains why I don't start these entries with Dear Diary. Homosexual rape isn't really Dear Diary material. I don't mean to demean or slander the fraternity system, but my concerns were somewhat empirically based. I mean, first, strong evidence suggested the presence of homosexual members to those social living groups. I mean, how logic alone suggested as much. Second, the panalytic system not only engendered but often encouraged the type of pack behavior that taught violence as a traditional form of bonding. You didn't have to be aware of the rumors about the sexual component of certain Hell Week rituals to conclude that these possibilities did exist, and there was no way I was going to risk being stampeded by a herd of wild elephant walkers. To be more specific, I'd observe random acts of Greek violence firsthand. These pack behaviors still alarm me more than what we commonly call street violence. Drug-related violence follows a certain pattern, and while I don't respect the mindset of the street criminal, I understand. To the contrary, I don't, and won't, comprehend what led fraternity members across the street from my apartment to take my kitten off the sidewalk, break his neck, skin him, and wear him around their house like a hand puppet. What goes on in the minds of these semi-educated college men? When the members of the house across the basketball arena cut down the 30-year-old pine tree from that elderly man's front yard one Christmas? At least 
the outline of reason was evident. They wanted a spectacular tree for their upcoming national tournament that was in town because television exposure was quite likely. They wouldn't or couldn't afford to buy one the size they envisioned. Stealing the old man's pine tree, the only one in his yard, was simple enough during a late-night covert operation. Since they only received a reprimand after being caught, clearly the risks weren't excessively high. Hence, these four points display a, a reasoning that is deplorable, but not ultimately very confusing. They sought a Christian symbol to serve as a beacon to their unchristian spirit. Okay, Bob and Jack are back with Film Break. So Jack, next we'll review a movie this week that is much anticipated. Jurassic Park from Steven Spielberg. Bob, let me start by saying that many of us, not just movie-going fans, are delighted to see Spielberg back. As you know, most of his creative efforts have gone into production in recent years. And he has excelled as a producer with such works as Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Both of them made our top ten lists, but Hook, a movie on which we split our opinion, was his only real director's turn in the 90s. Now Spielberg has produced one of the most stunning films ever made. Jurassic Park is an adaptation of a Michael Crichton novel whose work has played well in Hollywood in the past. Yes, Jack, we both like the Andromeda strain, and I was impressed by The Terminal Man. We both agree that Crichton, rising sun notwithstanding, does provide Hollywood good material. Jurassic Park exceeds those other examples with brilliant special effects and sound editing. Spielberg has masterfully woven the tricks of filmmaking into the story. He's done what movies like this should do. He shows us something we couldn't see anywhere else. More on that, Jack. He shows us something unimaginable even ten years ago. Anyone who was riveted by Godzilla will be transfixed. Which raises the point about children and the PG-13 rating. Yes, Jurassic Park is an excellent example in favor of the newest rating. Obviously, what a 14-year-old can handle emotionally differs significantly from what a 10-year-old could. Precisely. The effects here are good, so real, that I won't take my children to see it. My review of this movie, an opinion for which I've taken some heat, Jack, stems entirely from how much time you and I have spent talking about the special effects. That's because precious little can be praised about the plot, character development, and denouement. What happens if you take the light and magic out of this movie? I cannot disagree more with the point you made in print, and I won't let you make the same argument here. Jurassic Park would be hurt without the visual effects in the same way that, say, Star Wars would be. Since the story and the images are married on film, I don't see the point in playing one against the other. What we are talking about with Jurassic Park is not a marriage, Jack. Not by a long shot. Oh, here we go. I enjoyed the movie, but I have no inhibitions about why. Jurassic Park is a porno film. Granted, there aren't any naked, writhing human bodies in the movie, but there are plenty of writhing and snarling dinosaur bodies, and frankly, the plot is only window dressing for one deep throat encounter after another. You seem to have forgotten about Creighton's story and the established actors like Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum. It's not me who forgot them, Jack, it's Spielberg. He only uses them to stitch together enough dramatic justification for one big dinosaur moment after another. Ridiculous. Let's let's take the disturbing porno label out of it for the sake for the sake of argument for a second. Instead, we can produce some common ground by comparing Jurassic Park to the teen sexploitation genre. It still won't work. Hear me out. We've complained numerous times about the predictability of those movies. It's not just the oversimplification of the plot, but how the plot only serves the goal of stripping actresses. The plot starts with some talk of sex, in this case dinosaurs. Then, within about 15 minutes, we are given a brief glimpse of nudity, or perhaps a lot of nudity off in the distance. By the next reel, we get a close, upfront view of the big starlet. I agree that these movies exist to showcase TNA, and Jurassic Park proudly showcases its amazing special effects. There, the similarities end. The comparison with teen exploitation films may end there, but that's where the porno comparison picks right up. How's that? Because the rest of the film is one dinosaur devouring orgy after another. I can't believe you can make that comparison and then say you like the movie. Didn't you say last week that it was on your top five list of anticipated laser video disc releases? I did like it, beyond a doubt. 
Jurassic Park is one of the best of its kind. And when the next remake of Debbie Does Dallas is proposed to a studio, I want to be the first to recommend Steven Spielberg as a director. He has shown an affinity for the material. Aren't you being a little intellectually dishonest here? Not as dishonest as you, Jack. I'm calling a spade a spade. Jurassic Park is a porno movie, an impressively filmed one. Acknowledging that, I think it's worth a look to those who, A, don't mind a mindless plot, and B, won't be offended by all the goings-on. I, on the other hand, love the interplay Spielberg uses between his human characters and their dinosaur creations. No, you, on the other hand, saw some big ones, saw them moving and shaking, and decided that seeing something that you haven't seen at home was justification enough for an unconditional recommendation. Whatever you say, Bob. When we return, we'll review a new foreign film that has nothing to do with people being eaten alive, but everything to do with eating. September 6th. It's ironic that I've spent so much time bashing the fraternity system. What those groups offer is a sense of membership. What I've been painfully missing since graduating and moving out of the middle of nowhere is precisely that. Membership. Whether the goal is to become a member of the Christian community, or the cat-killing community, or simply the campus community, there is a compelling degree of comfort to be found in membership. I felt home on the streets of Cat-Killer University in a way I never could feel in several thousandville, USA because of membership. Of course, belonging requires a certain obligation. I didn't have to steal anyone's property or sacrifice anyone's pet. I didn't have to run naked through a cemetery squeezing a marshmallow between my buttocks. I didn't even have to smoke a cigar or take a shot of tequila. I did, however, feel strong pressure to ponder the fundamental questions of life as a pledge to the intelligentsia. Answering, or even addressing such questions, required being in solitude. It required the kind of solitude I'm not finding on these unfamiliar streets. By the way, I never resolved anything. Not there, and not here. Even though the questions I confront here are much, much smaller. Did that used to be a speedy mart? I asked myself just the other night. Say you don't get an answer to that question. Say you can't resolve whether it was a speedy mart or a gas and go. Now, say you never resolve the multifaceted ramifications to the possibility that the existence of a world-creating Big Bang mandates the concept of infinite causal regression. In the latter case, defining the nature and involvement of a necessary being is a far greater, if equally futile, achievement to the former instance conclusion that the empty lot unquestionably was paved for one or the other convenience store at some seemingly distant time. Bigger questions, though unresolved, beget bigger answers. <music> to be honest, I was not quite sure what to do with a different drummer for the first couple of chapters of an eight-chapter novella that itself doesn't have much of a related through-line or consistent recurring characters. It is what it is. The thought that occurred to me for this first one, though, and I will keep this first one brief, not in small part due to the decision to include two chapters in the introduction to some assembly required, I decided to go with a voice as much as anything else. Zay Frank. Zay Frank was born Hosea Jan Frank, He's an American online performance artist, composer, humorist, and public speaker, now based in Los Angeles. This is the Wikipedia introduction to him, and it's an odd thing. For people who are familiar with his work, or at least his voice, no real introduction is probably needed. I'll provide one all the same here in a moment. And for people who have never encountered his work before, the fact that I'm citing him primarily for voice work... Uh, voice work, even more than what they're calling in this article performance art, means that without dropping in a sound clip, which I don't think I'm going to do, it's really hard to simulate. The thought in my mind was the diary entries from Chapter 2 of Some Assembly Required were written in a way with a notion that perhaps they could have been read by somebody with an ironic tone in his voice, not unlike Zay Frank. Now, I had never heard of Mr. Frank at the time that I wrote this in 1994, 
totally unfamiliar figure to me. His work in various projects, some of which were uh, either short-lived or had clearly defined starting and stopping points, at times clearly defined starting and stopping points that upset his fans, have been mainly in the period of time after, say, 9-11-2001. Most of the things I've encountered have actually been in even this decade, not really so much the decade before. So there may be folks who are familiar with Zay Frank from The Show or A Show or True Facts. Ironically, I did seek out one example of his non-commercial work from the True Facts series. I was fascinated to see what he did with an episode called True Facts on actor Morgan Freeman. The True Facts about Morgan Freeman episode is available. It's only a couple minutes long. It's available on YouTube. And the reason I thought of it is that if I was considering who I might want to be the narrator of some of my characters in the story that I've just begun to share... Zay Frank is kind of the voice that I'm looking for. For me, if you're still unfamiliar, I will point to a couple of things. One in particular, the Frisky's cat food ads, Dear Kitten. Um, I don't know enough about Frank to know if choosing him as a different drummer is going to be one of those different drummers that comes back later to haunt me. That there's things I don't know because for me, this man is... Again, by and large, primarily a voice. And maybe even by and large, primarily a voice in cat food advertisements, at least among other things. But that's the way I'm going to go with it, though, because I think that those ads, in particular, are solid enough as entertainment in and of themselves, with a uh, kind of a full-grown cat being voiced by Frank, giving a brand new kitten to the house instructions, including instructions like, now that I've hissed at you the requisite 437 times, I suppose I should take you under my wing and give you some advice. And the rest of the entire series of ads is a cat's sort of outside looking in, I would say Dadaistic perspective, if not even surrealist perspective, on living with humans. At the time I'm recording this, which is going to be a couple of weeks before it comes out, I posted to the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page and on Twitter the Super Bowl episode from Frisky's in this Dear Kenton series. If you don't have uh, the wherewithal or the interest to track it down yourself on YouTube, visiting the Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations gives you a way of looking at that ad. It's a good representative example of the work. The first time I saw those ads, I made an inaccurate kind of connection, but I think it's probably worth sharing. I heard what Frank was doing, and it reminded me of a series, well, not even a series, it was a single, like, two-minute episode, fake documentary, called Spiders on Drugs. The first half of it is ostensibly a story of science doing research on the wood spider with controlled substances, but it clearly becomes uh, fiction as it goes along with things like restraining orders and, and, uh, well drug-dealing spiders before it's all over. It, there's no relation between the two. That earlier work was not the work of Zay Frank. But when you think about Frank's True Facts series, including True Facts about Baby and Kitas, this, uh, True Facts about the Octopus, those shows, it is of a similar ilk. And again, if I wanted somebody to narrate the part of the chapter I just finished about the cat-killing community at the university I attended... It's Frank's voice that I think might be best to soften the tone and inject more of the humor that is intended to be there. That makes him my different drummer. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that this episode was going to have a... uh, an afterward in a notes section that I would use this as a way of introducing the concept of how I was managing a footnotes or in this case end notes concept on a work that's ostensibly truly fictional. And mainly it's less about you know notes in the traditional sense and more about specifically identifying citations and inspirations. It's it's not an annotated bibliography, but That's sort of a vibe that goes on with the way I handled this. It was my way of sort of leaving my own popcorn trail out of the forest that is neo-surrealist novellas. The one thing I didn't probably do a good enough job in the intro that I've got to make sure I do in the blurb is to remind people that Some Assembly Required, as a work, has explicit language throughout. 
More to the point of this outro, though, is trying to do a better job of explaining the inspiration. Again, it's not like I haven't talked about this or shared some of this material before. If I think about it and go back and look, the one of the very first episodes of Inappropriate Conversations was inspired by something that happened in church that annoyed me enough that I wanted to share my perspective, and the best version of my perspective I had was buried inside this novella. It was called The Least of These and Why Danzig's Godless Rocks. And that episode, Inappropriate Conversations 5, was the first time I shared this concept of temptations in the wilderness and a section of the, a section of the novella. I would do it again later, somewhere around Inappropriate Conversations 52. It was an April Fool's Day episode in 2011 called First Person Comedy, or Did You Hear the One About V8 Nate? That was also a big chunk of one of the chapters that's coming up here in the next two or three Inappropriate Conversations recordings. But at the risk of repeating myself from those two earlier dives into this material, let me just share what the notes page actually says at the end of the work. Linton Writing Experiment, 1994. What is to be accomplished by giving something up for Lent? My guess is that a large number of Christians who observe traditions of Lent would be less than confident of the answer to this question. If called upon to speak on behalf of all Christianity, I also would join the ranks of the underconfident. Speaking only for myself, though, I always celebrated Lent in a manner inconsistent with the majority of the Christian world. Rather than spreading the 40 days out through Easter, incorporating days off on Sundays, I always strive to concentrate the 40 days and 40 nights together so that, like Jesus' stay in the wilderness, my process of sacrifice would end with a return to Jerusalem, so to speak. This year, as in an occasional year past, I chose to engage in an undertaking for Lent rather than a forsaking. Our typical images of Lenten sacrifice include giving up. Giving up meat, chocolate, or certain beverages. The goal, of course, is to attain a measure of self-improvement through the process of sacrifice. This same goal can be achieved by practicing certain disciplines rather than avoiding others. In this case, I wanted to clear my mind, improve rational thought processes, and engage in an act of creation by committing to a daily regimen of writing. What did I give up for Lent? Laziness, excuses for avoiding creative impulses, the waste of letting ideas die on the vine before meaningful juices can be squeezed from them? I was not alone in my efforts. Of course, my work would be in vain if I were not aware of God's intervening influence. In addition, source materials aided my storytelling. Credits are listed by page number rather than footnote. For chapter one, I made no references. But for chapter two, here are the references. Jurassic Park, film directed by Steven Spielberg, 1993. Back to the Future, film directed by Robert Zemeckis, 1985. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, film directed by Robert Zemeckis, 1988. Hook, film directed by Steven Spielberg, 1991. Jurassic Park, novel by Michael Crichton, 1992. The Andromeda Strain, Film directed by Robert Wise, 1971. The Andromeda Strain, by Michael Crichton, 1969. The Terminal Man, film directed by Mike Hodges, 1974. The Terminal Man, novel by Michael Crichton, 1972. Rising Sun, novel by Michael Crichton, 1993. Godzilla, film directed by Terry Morse, 1956. Star Wars, Film directed by George Lucas, 1977. Debbie Does Dallas. Film reproduced by VX Incorporated, 1979. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
music by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.